So good to see you all here this morning. Happy Resurrection Day. It's a, it's a good day to know the Lord as Savior, to have the hope of the resurrection ahead of us. Um, this is a week in which I think our church should be especially aware of this sweetness of the life-giving hope of our Savior, one of our members named Christian. Um, was hit by a drunk driver and almost passed away and still is in critical condition, but it seems to be stable. So we're so thankful for that, um, that the Lord has protected him. Please be in prayer as the doctors continually have multiple surgeries to bring health to him. Um, also, we had two babies born this week to our church family. So Henry Allen Perlick, so congratulations to the Perlick family as they welcome a new one. And then Hudson Paul Carpenter, their first baby, so congratulations to the Carpenters. It really is a sweet thing to celebrate life, isn't it? The Lord preserving a life that was almost lost, the Lord granting to these two families the healthy birth of uh, two baby boys. Uh, What a privilege to uh, be part of the church family as God both protects and provides life. Uh, I, hope, I hope the Lord is moving and working in your life, that he is active. I think that, that's something our church has seen this week as the Lord protected Christian. Uh, when you flatline twice and come through multiple surgeries and survive, uh, the Lord's hand is on you. The Lord is protecting Christian. So keep, it, keep him in prayer. We don't know why the Lord do, does what he does, but he is good. Our Lord is faithful. Our Lord is active, and so we trust in him. If you have your Bibles, please open them to Isaiah 53. We're going to look at the resurrection from a a passage that I think often has a focus on the death of Christ. And rightly so. This passage's central theme is on Jesus Christ, who's the Lord's suffering servant, would be often how it's kind of captured, that phrase, suffering servant. When you go to chapter 53, really the, the whole context begins in chapter 52. I'm going to read from 52 verses 13 through the end of the chapter. The chapter or this section begins with the Lord speaking about the Messiah as his servant. And then as as you conclude the chapter in chapter 53, again, the Lord is speaking about his servant. So let me begin reading in chapter 52, verse 13. The Lord calls upon Israel by saying, Behold, my servant shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand." Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed or valued him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the punishment that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Yet out of the anguish of his soul shall he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. When you look at this text, it was written some 700 years before Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. Let's say 750 before he was crucified on the cross. In fact, we have manuscripts in the Dead Sea Scrolls that predate Jesus by over a century and a half. When you read this prophetic account, both historically and manuscript evidence, as well as what we know from when Isaiah prophesied, we have something that predates Christ by centuries. It is an irrefutable fact that this has been written as prophetic, not as historic document. And so as you read the account of this suffering servant who is to come, there's elements that are a little bit um, unclear, maybe less precise than, than we know the gospel account to be. But the work of the prophecy is so spot on, so clear, so profoundly true that most Orthodox Jews will discount this passage as being prophetic about the Messiah and say it speaks about the nation as a whole. Because it's proof is so strong and clear and pointed at revealing the suffering Messiah as the hope for redeeming men from their sins. This passage clearly indicts all of us as sinners. And in fact, I, I think one of the most pressing points in the text comes in chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 6, where he says, like sheep we've gone astray. We've turned, every one of us, to our own way. And when we think about what makes us sinful and what our sins are like and what wickednesses are truly wicked, we usually do not account for the simple straying of our attention and focus and desires away from God. We hardly think it's sinful to buy a house and not consider whether or not the Lord would be honored by such. We hardly think it's sinful to take a job because it delights our soul. And we never once ask, does it delight our Savior? We hardly think it's sinful to make plans and never submit ourselves to the Lord and say, does this please you? And yet that is the mark of a wicked and rebellious people. 
In this passage, he says there's iniquities, there's transgressions, there's sins. And all of these are laid on the shoulders of the servant who suffers because of the Lord. So you look at the, the backbone, the spine of the passage is about the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ. But if you missed it, the hope of the resurrection frames out the entire text. Go back with me to chapter 52, verse 13. Behold my servant, Yahweh calls all of the people to look at the Messiah coming, the suffering servant. He shall act wisely and shall be. That's a future verb, right? He shall do this. What? He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. And then the rest of the text, all the way till the end, he is getting hurt, beaten, broken, and dies not lift it up. And then you come to the end of chapter 53, and you see that in verse 12, once again, there's prosperity and honor for the suffering servant. I'd like to just suggest to you that, that as thematically this, this morning, that we look at the suffering servant as our crucified Messiah and living hope. Right? The crucifixion of the servant, followed by his resurrection is our hope. I'll say it again. The crucifixion of the Messiah and his subsequent resurrection is our hope. So let me just frame out a little bit of, of the, the themes I think you see in the text. As we get to the end, you see this contrast. If you look in verse 9, you'll see that he was clearly dead. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. The Messiah is not merely someone who's beat and bruised and broken. He's someone who dies. He's buried in a grave. He suffers under the penalty of the Lord himself, and he suffers for our transgressions to the point at which he dies. And remember, part of the purpose of the atonement was not merely death, but a violent, suffering death to satisfy the just requirements that God has placed on all those who sin. So in verse 9, you see he dies, but in verse 10, if you look right in the middle of that verse towards the end, he says, you shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. So in verse 9, he's dead, but in verse 10, he has prolonged days. And he has offspring. Well, what happened to this tender plant rising out of the dry ground that was cut off early in his life? Who died and was buried? How does he get long days? And how does he have offspring? Well, not only was he dead, he is now alive after having died, is the flow of the text. Not only that, when you look in verse uh, 8, he's condemned. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. He was considered stricken for transgressions. And verse 11 says that although he was condemned as sinner, he is righteous. Look at verse 11. Yahweh declares, after we have accused him and prosecuted him, verse 11 right in the middle, by his knowledge shall the what? Shall the righteous one, my servant. So we declared him guilty. We declared him wicked. God declares him the righteous one. Not only that, he's a helpless lamb of verse 7, slaughtered and silent. 
end in verse 12, he is dividing his portion among the great. He has conquered and divides his spoil among the strong. So in verse 7, he is a silent, helpless lamb slaughtered. In verse 12, he is the conquering Savior. Those contrasts are clear in Isaiah's presentation of the text. Again, I point you to this theme, the crucified Messiah, who subsequently is alive, is our hope. Let me just take you more carefully through the text and point out, I think, the significant elements as, as the author, who is Isaiah, gives us this poetic prophecy. Verse 11 says, out of the anguish of his soul, many, or he shall see and be satisfied. This arises, the satisfaction arises out of his obedience. Look back into verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Now, if you're familiar with Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned, God initially comes down and they're hiding from the Lord. And as God speaks to Adam and Eve and the serpent, he tells the serpent, that, that an offspring of Eve will crush his head and that serpent's offspring will crush the son of Eve's heel. So now we come into Isaiah 53 and picking up that theme from Genesis 3 and pointing it forward to the suffering servant. Who is actually doing the activity here of crushing? Who is the ultimate agent? It was the will of the Lord to see this servant crushed. It was the Lord who put him to grief. In other words, the suffering servant is in fact a servant. This is what Jesus says in John 17 as he's, he's preparing his disciples. He's praying to the Father in this high priestly prayer and he says that he's glorified the Father having done all that he has been given to do. He is a servant to the will of the Father. Again, if you come to the beginning of verse 11, it is the will of the Lord that prospers in his hand. God has given him a task, and the Son, Messiah, does the task with such success and skill, it prospers. I think there's so many applications in the text, but one of the simple thoughts that I think we should walk away with is that Jesus Christ was obedient and God gave him supporting grace so that all that he did in obedience, the Father prospered him in doing. Have you ever thought that Jesus Christ walked not only in dependence on God, but in supporting grace from the Father? I think oftentimes we hesitate to obey because we take an evaluation, a survey of how much gas we have in our gas tank. And we cannot see the supporting hand of God's grace. And the suffering servant is called to be crushed. To be stricken for the sins of the people. A burden too great for any man to bear. Right? A responsibility so overwhelmingly and exhaustingly big. Who could wrap his mind and heart and understanding around it and still absorb the wrath of God? Only someone supported by the grace of the Father. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. 
It was God's will to put him to grief. It was God's will that prospered then as the Messiah obeyed. He was a servant of the Lord. I would just challenge you all, if the New Testament repeatedly calls us to follow in the steps of the Lord, we should all have two marked responses. The first one is, I couldn't possibly be able to accomplish this. And the second is, but God's grace can help me. There's no way you can follow in the Lord's steps successfully without the grace of God. But as we look at the Messiah, we don't simply see someone who's obedient to the Lord. We see the Lord's will to do good through him, to call him to be crushed for the sake of others, to call him to walk in his grace and succeed in the task to which he'd been called. The Messiah is obedient to the Lord. Not only is he obedient to the Lord, the Messiah is the sinner's Savior. Continuing on, I want you to look down in verse 11. Out of the anguish of, the, uh, of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. This is a picture of the Messiah having done the work of the Father, finding joy and satisfaction in this. I don't know if you've ever had one of those days where you work exhausting, you work to the point of exhaustion, you work well and with skill, and you get to that point of the day where the work is done. And maybe with a cold glass of lemonade in your hand, you survey the project you've finished, and it feels good. Now, that's the picture of the Messiah. What did he do? I mean, as he sits in heaven with his metaphorical glass of lemonade, and he surveys his work, it was a brutal task that required submission to the Father when he was crushed. He carried the sins of all of the believers of all of the ages on the cross. He suffered the hatred of all of these people. He suffered years of just patient ministry with people like Peter. He suffered. And when he sits and surveys his work, you can almost hear the echo of words from the beginning when God looks at all he does and says, it is good, right? And then he ends that final day of creation says, it is very good. And you almost have that echo of heaven, the sun saying, this was a good work. This is good. And it leads then to this thought, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. I think you could probably paraphrase it something like this. By knowledge about him shall the righteous one, that would be Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the suffering servant, make many to be accounted righteous. You notice we're not saved by our righteousness. We're saved because we are accounted as righteous when we know the Lord Jesus Christ. And just in case there's any confusion, it's because he bears our iniquities. Look at that next line. It's not that we are accounted righteous because we're good. We're not. We're counted righteous because he bears our iniquities. He puts our sins on his shoulders. It is for our sins that he was beaten, bruised, broken, and dies on the cross for us. The end of chapter, excuse me, the end of verse 12 makes that also clear that he was poured out to death 
He was numbered with the transgressions. He bore the sins of many, and he makes intercession for their transgressions. That is, he stands between God's wrath and us. That's the idea of of intercessor there. It is that he stood as shield, absorbing God's justice, so that all those who are in the shadow of his grace are forgiven and redeemed from the wrath of God forever. By his knowledge, you're made righteous. By his knowledge, you're forgiven. By knowledge about him, full trust in him, and sweet relationship with him, you are saved from your sin forever. And remember, the definition of sin in this text is so strikingly different than what we think it should be. It is sin to live without recognition or acknowledgement of God. Like, I've never murdered anyone. By that standard, I'm a pretty good guy, maybe. It's a low standard, but I think most of you should be happy I didn't kill anyone. But the standard is so much higher than that. By not seeking to please God with my life, I am liable for all of God's wrath in hell forever. The standard is incredibly narrow. And so when the Bible says, all we like sheep have gone astray, everyone, all of us are indicted. All of us are guilty. But all those who know in saving fellowship, trust in Jesus Christ, are saved by being made or accounted righteous. So the suffering servant is the Messiah. He's the sinner's Savior. He's also the glorious conqueror. I want you to look back in verse 10. I'm going to skip a couple lines here and then go down to verse 12. I want to take you back to after a soul makes this, this offering, the Bible says he shall see his offspring, and then he shall have his days prolonged, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. It's particularly that middle line that I think is striking. He shall see his offspring. Jesus Christ died without having any children. He was never married. But here's the picture. I think Hebrews makes it clear that we are adopted. We are now sons. We had been declared, and rightly so, sinners in this text. And, and the work of the suffering servant moves us from being slaves to sin, condemned under sin, and worthy of suffering under our sins, to being saints who are sons. That's an incredible work. That the, the, the childless one, Jesus, goes from never being married and never having personal family to being given all of the redeemed, or as John 10 would say, they are his sheep. It's no wonder that we are identified as children of God. We, in fact, are his offspring. Ephesians would indicate that we are his inheritance. Now, as I think of inheritances, inheriting you all wouldn't be very joyful for me. Our house is full with six kids. I couldn't afford you. But here the son, the suffering servant, is pictured as, as like king who looks at his people as those he protects and cares for as father. 
He went from being despised and rejected to not being esteemed or valued, to be considering worthless, to being cast away and killed, to being the king who is the father of his nation, treasuring his people who are his glorious inheritance in Ephesians. It says the Lord will prolong his days. Now, we know how long those days are. They're never ending. They're eternal. And this is the promise of the New Testament. We go to John 3.16, and we get so tired of a verse because it's so often and poorly used. I mean, I appreciate the evangelistic efforts of football fans behind the goalpost putting John 3.16 up. I'm just pretty confident no one knows what's going on with that. But whoever believes will not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. And this is the prophetic promise of Isaiah that the one who is the first to taste of God's wrath in its fullest sense is also the first to experience life eternal. And he is the first fruits. And all of those who know him are granted eternal life with him. The hope that we have when we hear the tragic news that one of our sweet church family members has been in a tragic accident and might die is to pray with hope. Like, how could you possibly pray without hope? Like, what happens if our sweet brother passes away? The Bible says to die is gain. I mean, this is the day in which we, we put as the high day in the calendar because every Sunday is a little bit of a resurrection day, isn't it? But today is the day we look at, at the death of any of our loved ones. Whether she was a sweet saint who always said encouraging words and was taken away because of cancer earlier this year, or was, whether life being hung by a thread in the operating room, we pray for a brother. We pray with hope. Can you imagine the suffering servant not having the hope of prolonged days after he suffered? Jesus Christ goes to the cross knowing that on the backside of his obedience to the Father is eternal glory. When God says, follow after him, he has left you an example that you might follow in his steps, 1 Peter 2 says. What gives you, what gives you courage to walk in the valley of death's shadow that Psalm 23 calls us to? It's the fact that death is not the end. We have prolonged days with our Messiah, with our King. Look at the end in verse 12. Therefore, what's the therefore going back to? Making many righteous and bearing the iniquities of the people. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. There's a little bit of debate here. I think the ESV translates it well, but it could be also taken. Therefore, I will divide him a portion of the many. That is, he takes captives, his defeated foe. That is, they are the spoils. I don't think that's the right way to take it. I think the ESV probably has it right, but either, either way is actually legitimate in the Hebrew. And here's the idea then. The suffering servant goes from a broken, humble, rejected man to a conqueror in the crowd of those who've conquered with him. Right? He will divide the spoils of war. When Jesus Christ comes and dies on the cross, it looks like he has been defeated. 
when he is raised from the dead in relative quietness, so that out of the whole world, maybe 600 people see him. Right? That's a pretty quiet resurrection. And he ascends to heaven without defeating the Roman military, without crushing the hypocritical Pharisees, without regaining the glory and the accolades that he deserves. It kind of feels like a really badly written story. Like he, he should end by vindicating himself. Well, that's because the story is not over. That's because what Isaiah has prophesied has not yet happened. He is gloriously coming. He will defeat Satan. 1 Corinthians 15 says that he will subdue all enemies, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus Christ has yet to fulfill all of Isaiah 53. He will one day claim this whole world as his inheritance. He will reign as king from Jerusalem over this whole world and all who dwell in it. There will not be one rebel in his land who successfully escapes his justice. There will not be one person who is not under the kingship of Christ. That's why Psalm 2 calls on all of us to hurry up and kiss the Son lest he be angry with us because the day is coming when he returns in glory. I want you to go back to chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. As you just trace that text then, here's what wisdom looked like for the suffering servant. He comes to his people and his people reject him. His whole entire life, generally speaking, he was despised and rejected. He was a man acquainted with griefs and sorrows. We scoot forward as we get near the cross. His grief and political pressure increases and his suffering increases. The Bible says that as he comes over the hill, as he enters the area of Jerusalem, he looks over them and weeps for them because they are scattered like sheep without a shepherd. And the sweet shepherd is weeping for his sheep that are wandering. He was a man filled with grief because he loved the people and they did not love him in return. He was a shepherd calling to sheep who ran to sin rather than running to the Savior. But that was God's call for him. And so we read texts like, He has borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows. He was smitten by God. He was afflicted and pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. So here's what wisdom is for Jesus so far. He comes and he's rejected. He's hated by many. Loved by few. And then he suffers for others. Like no one has ever suffered or will ever suffer again. He suffers faithfully, righteously, without accusing God, without rebelling against God, without escaping the pressure that God has put on him to suffer for the sins of others. So here's what wisdom is. It is obeying his Father regardless of the cost, 
regardless of who is with you or who is cheering you on, regardless of the praise of men, regardless of how expensive it is, oftentimes God calls people to serve thanklessly in this life. Mothers, can I just appeal to you? There are going to be days where in exhaustion, your children ask one more thing of you. And you want to clap back. Can you imagine Jesus Christ as Savior? How many times he just wanted to let people know their place? Here's the heart of wisdom. is to do what God has called you to do. Faithfully obey the Lord, regardless of the cost. And here's the outcome then for this suffering servant. It is that God has given him, given him the inheritance of the world. It is that he has been raised to life and has prolonged days. He will live forever. It is that all of us have been not only redeemed from sin, we are now his children redeemed to him. Not only did the son's suffering accomplish for him great glory, it is our rescue and our hope. Here then is the sweet pattern for us to follow. But more than that, that we would just ponder and worship and glory in the Savior. We have hope today because he is raised again. Going back to that verse, behold my servant, he will act wisely and he will be high and lifted up. He will be exalted. This has yet to happen. He has been glorified physically, but he has not come in glory and power. He has not returned to establish his kingdom, to call all men to see and glory in him. That day is coming. Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. You who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, having nailed it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Or as Hebrews 2 says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, victor and rescuer at the same time. Romans 14, 9, for to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. The outcome of Jesus Christ's obedience and death is that he is Lord, that he is king, that he has the position and the power and the privilege of giving and granting life and forgiveness to all. I think sometimes we miss this. When the paralytic comes down through the roof and Jesus says to him initially, your sins be forgiven you, and there's outrage. He forgave sins. Based on his coming work of dying for sins. But he forgave them. Like this man in that moment had true forgiveness granted to him simply by the words of the king. You know you have power when you can grant forgiveness for sins. This is the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. Let me end 
with this from Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 14. I've clipped out a little bit of the narrative so that you could hear the worship song of heaven. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take up the scroll and open its seal, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under earth and in the sea and all that is in the sea and on the earth saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. That's what Isaiah is talking about. The worship of heaven, a cacophony of the redeemed saying, worthy is the lamb. Who? The lamb who was slain. The lamb from Isaiah 53, 7, who was silent as he was slaughtered for sins. The Messiah, who is crucified and sub- subsequently raised to life, is our hope. Charles Spurgeon said that the resurrection is our Gibraltar. If it is shaken, we lose our whole salvation. The resurrection reminds us that there is hope. And just like the Messiah, who threw his life on dusty roads, prosecuted by the Pharisees, killed by the Romans, lived with the hope of the resurrection. It energized his commitment to sacrifice. Sacrifice. It led him to obey his Father. The hope of the resurrection changes every day the life of a believer. So to the exhausted mother, one more time, serve your child for the sake of the Lord. You're the Lord's servant as you care for your children. For the father who needs to get up out of his chair and stop watching TV and spend time training his children to love Jesus, you do that for the Lord, not merely for your children. And certainly not because your wife is nagging you to. To the person who struggles on Sunday morning waking up on time to get to church, it's not merely about how much you need to be under the ministry of the Word of God. You need that. It's certainly not about how effective or enjoyable the music service is, because sometimes, frankly, it may not be. The fact is, you do this because it is what the servant has shown you we all should do because we are God's servants. And so if God says, assemble with my people, we dare not disobey. And it is good. It is good to obey God. It is hard, but it is good. And we look to Jesus Christ, the author the completer of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame of it because he valued the joy of heaven. The resurrection permeates, I should say this clear, more clearly, the hope of the resurrection should permeate all your decisions, your whole life, the sacrifices 
And some of you, if I could just make this one last appeal, your commitment to turn from sin and to trust the Savior. The promise for all of those who have Jesus Christ is resurrection to life. The promise of those who do not have Jesus Christ as Savior do not know him, nor do they live for him. The promise for them is eternal judgment. To be crushed, as Psalm 2 says. Please, in the words of Psalm 2, kiss the Son. Give him your loyalty, your fidelity, your obligations of obedience and worship. Give those to the Son, lest he be angry with you and crush you. Trust in him. The resurrection is coming. Resurrection to glory for God's people. Do you know the suffering servant, whose death and subsequent resurrection is our hope. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the resurrection. We have the hope that the same resurrection that Jesus experienced will be given to all those who hope in him. Lord, that hope that there is a resurrection, that one day, all the believers of all the ages will be united in eternal life in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the lion and the lamb, is the hope that fills each day with purpose as we live for the King of Kings, as we seek to please Him in all that we do and say. Father, I ask that the hope of the resurrection would give us peace when suffering when the possibility of death or when just pure fatigue tempts us to despair. Lord, I ask that we would look to Christ as the author of our faith, as the one who patterns for us what it looks like to live in such a way that you delight and are honored to reward your servants. Lord, help us to look to Christ for how we should act wisely in this world. More importantly, Father, I pray that the heart of everyone in here would trust in Jesus Christ, that they might be accounted as righteous because Jesus Christ has paid for their sins by his sacrificial work on the cross. Lord, help everyone to trust fully in Jesus Christ, not in their own works, not in the hope that you'll ignore their failures or sins, but in the confidence that Jesus Christ has paid it all. Lord, I ask that you would give us renewed joy in serving. Lord, if those in here are weak, are tired, if they're distracted by the world, would you renew their joy and their gaze so that they might look to Christ and find hope. In the name of Jesus, amen.